If you join me in Bible study this morning, please open up to Zechariah chapter 9, verse 13. Zechariah in Hebrew, Zechariah means the Lord remembers. Which is eminently tied to Malachi chapter 4, isn't it? Yes. God promised that after that third captivity, though he called the diaspora, that God would bring the children of Israel home, back to the land of Israel. In Ezekiel 37, did he promise he would come back, all his believers singing praises to the Lord, saved by faith? The answer is no. That they would come back, but as a godless nation, and that's the way they were regathered. However, they were immediately attacked in 1948 from all sides by overwhelming forces that should have driven them into the sea. How did they survive? Because of God. In 1956, they were mercilessly attacked from all sides by overwhelming odds. Again, little Israel wins. 1967, 1973, you can just keep adding the dates. Every one of those times, Israel should have been annihilated. But, but for Zechariah chapter 9, verse 13. Yes, up to this point in Zechariah, God has promised Messiah would come. But not that he would be accepted by all the people. And that they would go into captivity, but God would bring them back. In verse 13 it says, For I have bent Judah my bow. When you see the words, my bow, you know a military force, a military might. Fitted the bow with Ephraim. What do you fit into a bow? The arrow. So Judah and Ephraim would come back together as a great military force because God is with them. Think about the time that God brought Israel into the land, crossed the Jordan River to engage the Canaanites. Canaanites were much stronger. They had giants. And who prevailed? Israel did because the Lord was on their side. And what the Lord has said from the beginning is, I will keep my promises to you. Demonstrate my love. My honesty, my truthfulness, my covenant-keeping character, and then I expect you to do the same. So God brought Israel back into the land in 1948. They became a nation again, not a godly people, and yet God demonstrated the truth of his promises, the truth of his scriptures, the truth of his character, and expects that Israel then will repent and turn back to him and embrace him when they see his love for them. And that's why in verse 13, even though they come back together as a godless nation, he is making them a mighty force and defending them against all enemies. Because if you've been to Israel, and many of you have, 30 years ago, what percentage of Israel was believers? Minuscule. Today, there's Messianic congregations everywhere. As people who were so hardened by the Holocaust have come to say, God still loves us. God still defends us. God still keeps his promises. So he says, I have bent Judah my bow and fitted the bow with Ephraim and raised up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece. Greece referring to the Gentile pagan powers that have so oppressed Israel. Have they stopped oppressing Israel? 
No, if you think so, you haven't been watching the news. And made you like the sword of a mighty man. Well, God did the same thing back after the Babylonian captivity when the Maccabees defeated this Syrian army that was an overwhelming force. And he's demonstrated this same quality of faithfulness and protection again and again and again. But will there come a point where God says, if you will not turn, then I will take away my hand of protection. Yeah, in the tribulation period, things start going terribly for Israel, don't they? Until what? Till they finally repent and turn back to God as a whole, as a nation with their whole heart. Yes. So, as it was in the days of the Maccabees, the Syrian king, Antiochus Epiphanes, was the picture of what? The prophetic picture of the false messiah, Antichrist, or beast of Revelation 13. When Israel, in the days of the Maccabees, turned to God and said, No, we will not bow our knee to idolatry. We will not participate with the pagans in their sexual immorality. Then God delivered them. Same thing's going to happen in the day of the Lord. A mighty man. What is that word in Hebrew? Gabor. Makes you think of Isaiah 9, doesn't it? Turn back to Isaiah 9. How do you spell Gabor? G-I-B-B-O-R. Or any way that makes you say Gibor. That's all transliteration is, is put English letters that make you say the Israeli word. The, we're going to Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Why? Because it's very relevant to what we're looking at in Zechariah. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7 covers a 2,000 plus year period. Verse 6 alone is 2,000 years from beginning to end. Begins for, for unto us a child is born. You guys know what that is in Hebrew, right? Everybody say, Ki yeled yulad lanu. Ki yeled, you remember the song? For unto us a child is born. That word yeled means a baby born of a woman. So Messiah had to be born of a woman to fulfill this prophecy. Was he? He was. Unto us a son is given. Ooh, that word son is not baby. So the child is born first coming. The son is given second coming. And the government will be upon his shoulder. Here's where I've heard at least five Jewish people in the last week say that Jesus can't be the Messiah because he didn't fulfill this and the government will be upon his shoulder. Is this to be fulfilled at the first coming or second? Second. Ah, the second coming. So what have they missed? The 2,000 years that take place between the first clause and the second. The government will be upon his shoulder. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, El Gabor. That word Gabor is the same one that's used here in Zechariah to describe the children of Israel. That is, they take upon the mighty warrior capabilities of God because God is with them. He is the mighty God who is leading them. He is the Gabor that leads them into battle. Verse 14. Oh, we're back in Zechariah in case you didn't notice. Quick transition, I know. 
Zechariah 9.14, then the Lord will be seen over them. What does that mean, over them? When Israel first became a nation in 1948, did God establish himself in the Temple Mount in the center of Jerusalem? No, he was not in their midst yet physically, but he's over them, watching over like a mother hen protects her chicks with them under her wings. Or will be seen over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. So while the Israeli military is getting the credit for all these great victories, whose arrow really took the battle? The Lord did. His arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will blow the trumpet. Whoa. When that trumpet sounds that begins the day of the Lord, then there are three great battles that are going to take place. Ooh, we'll talk about those. The Lord God, it's actually my Lord, the Lord. When you see the way Lord God is spelled, where Lord is in small letters and God is in capitals. It shouldn't read the Lord God. It should say my Lord, the Lord. The word God there is the tetragrammaton. We'll blow the trumpet and go with whirlwinds from the south. What are whirlwinds? Tornadoes. Tornadoes. How many of you have ever seen a tornado up close and personal? And seeing the great destruction that comes, nothing stands in the wake. And that's what it means. God's going to come. He's going to come hard. At first, he's going to do it through the Israeli Defense Forces, as he did in 1948, 1956, 1967, 1973, and 2023. But then you'll notice that as we go farther into the tribulation period, it's less the then the Lord goes forth and fights as he fights in that day of battle. Give me a verse that says just that. It's Zechariah 14. So keep a finger in 9 and let's go to 14. Zechariah 14 verse 1. Behold. What does behold mean? It means what's following. It's really important so don't miss it. The day of the Lord is coming. Does the day of the Lord refer to a 24-hour period? No, a thousand-year period. It begins with the rapture and resurrection, then the seven-year tribulation period, then the 993-year millennial kingdom, and then the new heavens and the new earth. And your spoil will be divided in your midst. Jerusalem's going to be divided. What is the United States, United Nations pushing Israel right now? Do what? Divide Jerusalem. Give half of it to the Palestinians for the capital of their state. What did God say? No. For I will gather all the nations, that's the United Nations, to battle against Jerusalem. Jerusalem won't be divided, Israel says, and the United Nations says we'll force it. The city shall be taken. The houses rifle the women ravish. Half the city shall go into captivity. But the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. What does God call Jerusalem? The apple of his eye. When you poke God in the eye, then you get a comeuppance. And that's what's going to happen. So three times in the day of the Lord, there are going to be huge battles. 
The first is the Psalm 83 war. Turn to Psalm 83 for just a moment. There are many prophecy teachers right now saying, I didn't think Psalm 83 was really a thing, but as we're watching what's developing in Israel at the moment, we can see it on the horizon now. Psalm 83. A song of Asaph. Hey, it's just a song, they say. No, Asaph is a prophet. He's described in the scripture as a seer, which is an old-timey word for a prophet. Do not keep silent, O God. Do not hold your peace. Means what? Lord, we're under attack. Help us. Help us. Pay attention. See what's going on. Intervene. Do not be still, O God. Help us, please. For behold, your enemies make a tumult, and those who hate you have lifted up their head. Why is the world coming against Israel and Jerusalem? Because God loves them. And the world hates God. Therefore the world hates God's people and his land. They have taken crafty counsel against you, which means they've made a confederacy. They've entered into a mutual assault treaty. Normally you say mutual defense treaty, but there's nothing defensive about it, right? They're coming to what? From Israel, from the river to the sea. Yeah. And consulted together against your sheltered ones. Sheltered meaning under God's wings as we're reading in Zechariah chapter 9. They said, come, let us cut them off from being a nation that the name of Israel may be remembered no more. Why does Satan want that? What did the Lord say in Matthew 23? You'll see me no more until... They say, Baruch Habam Hashem and I, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So until Israel calls for Messiah to return, he won't return. So if the devil can abolish the Jewish people, can drive them into the sea and exterminate them, then Messiah can't return, God loses. Satan wins. How many think God's scared? Not at all. Verse 4, they said, Come and let us cut them off from being a nation. The name of Israel may be remembered no more, for they have consulted together with one consent. They form a confederacy against you. Well, that's just English. What the Hebrew says is they cut a covenant against you. They have covenanted that they will not allow Israel to live. And if you read Psalm 2, it's because they know Messiah is coming to rule and reign in Israel. And they say, we're not going to let you rule and reign over us. You've heard the Muslim battle cry. What is it? Allahu Akbar. God is great. No, it doesn't mean God is great. It means Allah is greater. Greater than the God of the Jews and the Christians. That's the real problem in Israel. If they allow Israel to remain then they're admitting that the God of Israel is greater than Allah. So if any land's been under Muslim control, they can't let it be under control of the Jews or Christians. Starting in verse 6, they tell us who is involved in the battle in the Psalm 83 war. The tents of Edom, that's Jordan, and the Ishmaelites, Moab, still Jordan, and the Hagrites, they're the descendants of Hagar, they're nomadic Arabic tribes down through Jordan into Saudi Arabia, etc. Gibal, that's in the north. Ammon and Amalek. Everybody go boo. boo. 
Felicity inhabitants of Tyre. Assyria has also joined with them. They've helped the children of Lot, Selah. Those nations, verses 6 through 8, are the Muslim nations that share a border with Israel. Not a single one of the nations that doesn't share a border with Israel is mentioned. So Iran's not involved. Turkey's not involved. Sudan's not involved. And the Israeli Defense Forces is going to conquer them just as easily as they're conquering the Hamas terrorists down in Gaza. Why? Because it's God's arrow. They're acting as God's emissaries there. Question. Question, go ahead. Geographical location of Sudan. Sudan is in Africa, just okay. south of Egypt. I thought so, but I... Yep, south of Egypt. All right. Now turn to Ezekiel 38. That's the second war. When Israel defeats the nations of Psalm 83, they push out their borders. We now have more land that used to be under Muslim control that's now under control of Israel. How's that going to sit with the rest of the Muslim world? Oh, not good. So go to Ezekiel chapter 38. Is there a time frame between the first war and the second war? I will give you my opinion. In 1 Thessalonians, it says in chapter 5, when they say peace and safety, then comes sudden destruction. That peace and safety will be that seven-year treaty confirmed by the false Messiah that guarantees Israel peace and security. And as soon as Israel lays down its arms, here comes the Psalm 83 war. Yep. We tricked them. We got them. In Arabic, it's called a hudna. Hudna is a guarantee of peace so that when your enemies lay down their arms, then you attack them and obliterate them. It was a common practice by Muhammad in his days of conquering. And then... I see the Battle of Gog and Magog as three years into the tribulation period, six months before the midpoint. When will we know for sure if that timeline is right? When we watch it. Is the United States part of that second war? The United States is not mentioned in end times prophecy. So for 30 years I've been saying something bad's going to happen to this nation before the day of the Lord comes. Can anybody see that on the horizon? Yeah. Have you been watching the news articles lately about how if China drops a nuke, 90% of the United States will be obliterated in the first detonation? Yeah, it's coming. So Ezekiel 38 verse 1, now, it's never now, the word of the Lord came to me saying, what's that word saying? It's a quote, this is from the lips of the Lord, can it be wrong? No, son of man, set your face against Gog. That's a person. Gog is a person. Of the land of Magog, that's a country. It's a descendant of Japheth in Genesis chapter 10. Today, it's the area of Russia and those states that are just below Russia. All those that end with an an. The stands. Yeah. Those are all Muslim nations. Any nation that ends with Stan is a Muslim nation. The Prince of Rosh, Meshach and Tubal. Meshach and Tubal are also sons of Japheth in Genesis chapter 10. So we're talking about people groups. Prophesy against them and say, Thus says the Lord God, 
Behold, I'm against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. So it's Russia and the allies to the south. I will turn you around, put hooks into your jaws, and lead you out with all your army, horses, and horsemen, all splendidly clothed, a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. In other words, it's a massive military buildup. It's not just Russia and the stands. Verse 5 says Persia. Until 1935, that was the name of Iran. Ethiopia, which goes down into Sudan. And Libya, that's the old put. So those are the Muslim nations that do not share a border with Israel. Those that shared a border with Israel were destroyed in the Psalm 83 war. It's not just Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya, or that is Iran, Kush, and Libya, but it says Gomer. That's western Turkey over into Germany. Boy, the Germans have never had a problem with the Jews, right? Hmm. The house of Togarma, that's more of Turkey. Gomer and Togarma make up Turkey. From the far north and all its troops, many peoples are with you. Prepare yourself and be ready, you and all your companies that are gathered about you, and be a guard for them. After many days, you'll be visited. In the latter years, you will come into the land of those brought back from the sword and gather for many people on the mountains of Israel. So where are they going to attack? The Golan Heights from Syria. Where do you find Russian, Turkey, and Iranian troops today? In Syria. Hmm. How far from the Golan Heights, do you know? If you go up to the Golan Heights, up to Harbintal, and look toward Damascus, you see Damascus itself and all those troops from Russia, Iran, and Turkey. God got another one right. Which had long been desolate. They were brought out of the nations, and now all of them dwell safely. What was recently found in the Golan Heights? Oil. Oil and gas. They say more than and under all the Arab nations. So the United Nations says, the Golan, oh, oh no, that doesn't belong to Israel. They're occupiers. It belongs to Syria. So the world says, we got to take it back from Israel so the Muslim nations can have all that oil and gas. Hmm. Verse 9, you'll ascend, coming like a storm, covering the land with a cloud, you and all your troops and many peoples with you. Hmm. Let's go down to verse 18. And it will come to pass at the same time. At the same time, it's said over and over again before that, in that day. What is in that day? It's in the day of the Lord. It's in the tribulation period. When Gog comes against the land of Israel. So you hear a lot of prophecy teachers say, Gog and Magog, that could happen before the tribulation period starts. God said, no, no, no. It's part of the tribulation period. That my fury will show in my face. Does that mean God's a little perturbed? You know what that word fury is in Hebrew? It's the flaring of a horse's nostrils right before he stomps you into the dirt. That's not when the horse is perturbed. That's when he's homicidal. For my wrath, it says, my fear was shown on my face for my jealousy and in the fire of my wrath. When's God's wrath poured out? It's in the tribulation period, in the day of the Lord. 
I've spoken. Surely in that day, what day? Hey, Lord, there shall be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. How big an earthquake? So that the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, and the beasts of the field, all creeping things that creep on the earth, and all men who are on the face of the earth shall shake at my presence. That means if you're standing here in Georgia, you'll be knocked off your feet by the size of the earthquake that takes place in Israel. Anybody think that's a five or a six? Hundred maybe. The mountains shall be thrown down as deep places shall fall and every wall shall fall to the ground. I will call for a sword against Gog throughout all my mountains. What did we just read in Zechariah 9? God's sword, his arrows, his weapons of war. Every man's sword will be against his brother. Fog of war. I have not been in battle, but I have been through Air War College and studied the battles. And one of the freaky things that happens in war is called the fog of war, where people get all confused. When you have troops from a dozen different nations trying to fight together, how do they know who's friendly and who's the enemy? Well, they do. We have systems called IFF, indicate friend or foe. So if you turn, say, a laser-guided missile on an American convoy, your screen light, I can't go too far into technology, but it says, please don't shoot them, they're ours. But if those IFFs fail, like God says, eh, turn them off, then you don't know who's friendly and who's not. You just know they're shooting your way. And they're going to turn and start shooting each other, not knowing who's friend and who's foe. That's what it means. Every man's sword will be against his brother. They know they're in a desperate fight for their lives, and they don't know who, from which direction the enemy comes. So verse 22, and I'll bring him to judgment with pestilence and bloodshed. I will rain down on him, on his troops, and on the many peoples who are with him. Flooding rain, great hailstones, fire and brimstone. If you've seen nuclear weapons go off, you recognize the description here. Good thing none of the enemies of Israel have nuclear weapons, huh? Well, when they start throwing them, they're going to throw them on their own troops. Verse 23, thus I will magnify myself and sanctify myself, and I will be known in the eyes of many nations, not just Israel. Israel's going to recognize that this wasn't them, that God did this, but so will many of the nations. And they're going to realize we're fighting on the wrong side. I mean, this was prophesied how many years ago? And they're going to see it come to pass before their eyes. It says, then they shall know that I am the Lord. Who is they? Many nations. Not just Israel, but many nations. That's why we're going to read shortly about how many of the nations that today are Muslim are going to become followers of the true and living God. It's going to be because God has revealed himself in an unmistakable way. Absolutely unmistakable. Now, at this point, all Israel gets saved. It's a, yes, sir. I have a question. Go ahead. Where do you think, uh, when do, where do you think in your opinion would be like the prophecy of Elam? When do I think the prophecy of Elam will be? From Jeremiah 49. Yeah. I think Jeremiah 49 and Isaiah 17 are part of the Psalm 83 war. 
is going to be part of the trigger. Because what is emboldening the Muslim nations right now? Iran developing nuclear weapons. If Iran has nuclear weapons, then who's going to stand before them? But what is in Alam but the Bashir nuclear reactor? Jeremiah 49. Let's turn to Jeremiah 49. It says Alam's going to become uninhabitable. And Isaiah 17 says Damascus is going to become un uninhabitable. When Iran develops a nuclear weapon, where will they position it? Where will they put it? In Damascus. Okay. So we're going to Jeremiah 49. So I put the major wars as Psalm 83, Battle of Gog and Magog and Armageddon, but Isaiah 17 and Jeremiah 49 are in there. Jeremiah 49 verse 34. The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah the prophet against Elam. Elam today is part of Iran. It's just across the Red Sea. And it's right where the Bashir nuclear reactor is. In the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, that's when the prophecy is given. King of Judah saying, thus says the Lord of hosts. What kind of prophecy? End times. When you see Adonai Zavaot, you know it's an end times prophecy. Behold, I will break the bow of Elam. The bow means their military might. Not just the military might, but what the foremost of their might. What is the foremost weapon that Iran hopes to have? That's the nukes. Against Elam, I will bring the four winds. Four winds indicate war from the four quarters of heaven and scatter them toward all those winds. That is, Alam will be uninhabitable. The people are going to have to flee in all directions. There will be no nations where the outcasts of Alam will not go. For I will cause Alam to be dismayed before their enemies and before those who seek their life. I bring disaster upon them. My fierce anger, says the Lord, and I will send the sword after them till I have consumed them. I will set my throne in Alam. What's going to happen to that portion of Persia when the Lord does this? They're going to realize that the Lord is God and the prophecies are true. And God tells us in the book of Isaiah how we can know that he's truly God. And how's that? Because only he can tell us the end from the beginning. When you see prophecies that are thousands of years old come to pass, you know God is real. Now go to Matthew chapter 24. Which one? Elon. No, I think that's part of the first one. Oh. I think it'll be part of the Psalm 83 war. I've got a question for you. What's your question? Okay, so you've got three different wars coming. Three different wars coming. In verse 38, I will set my throne. I'll set my throne. So after he's conquered them or consumed them, is it. They're going to turn to recognize him as God. And so these different countries then we'll begin recognizing and accepting and believing yep. in Messiah. Right. And it's not going to be everybody at once. Right. Right? Right. Just, wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. The reason the tribulation period is seven years is it takes a long time for people to wake up. Yes, ma'am. The Iranian people are turning to Christianity in droves. Yes, the Iranian people are turning to Christianity in droves. That's absolutely correct. Yeah. So That's today. God's preparing a way. You bet. Matthew 24. So think of the battle of Gog and Magog being about three years in. All Israel gets saved, as it says in Romans 11, 
verses 25, 26, 27, that area. And then here comes six months, no, five months later, the abomination of desolation. That gets set up 30 days before the midpoint. Now let's see what Messiah said, verse 15, Matthew 24, 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Who in Jerusalem is going to listen to and follow the words of the Lord? The unsaved or the saved? So that's why, it, to me, it, Gog and Magog, it's about three years in, People get saved, and then they have a chance to study the scripture and go, uh-oh, look at that. When we see that abomination, desolation, it's time to flee where? This says to the mountains. Daniel chapter 11 says to the place where the false messiah has no sway. Um, in the book of Revelation chapter 12, it's to the desert. So where is it? Then Isaiah chapter 16 says, well, it's Petra. Only they use the name Selah, which is Hebrew. Petra is Greek. Selah and Petra mean the same thing. One's Hebrew, one's Greek. Okay. So let's go back to Zechariah chapter 14. We read the first three verses. Messiah stands up and goes to war. That's verse 3. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day, what day? Day of the Lord. His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. Where did Messiah ascend to heaven from? Mount of Olives. What did the angels say? He's returning as he left, right? So he comes back to the Mount of Olives, faces Jerusalem on the east. This confuses a lot of people because the Mount of Olives is in Jerusalem today, but it wasn't in the Lord's day. It was east of Jerusalem. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Why? When half of the mountain goes north, half of it goes south, what happens to that Muslim graveyard in front of the eastern gate? It goes away. Half the mountain shall move toward the north, half it toward the south. Then you shall flee through the mountain valley. From mountain valley you shall flee to Azal. What's an Azal? That's where they would take the scapegoat at Yom Kippur and push it off. Yes, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Thus the Lord my God will come. Wait a minute, I thought it was Messiah that was returning. Yep, yep that's right. Messiah here is called the Lord my God will come. And all the saints with you. Saints. How are saints described? What are their characteristics in Revelation 14, 12? They keep the commandments of God and the faith of Yeshua. By the way, who are you reading? I'm in Zechariah chapter 14. That was verse 5. Now verses 6 and 7. I can't leave till we read those. It shall come to pass in that day that there will be no light. Oh, that takes us to the Joel two prophecies, etc. That there will be no light, the lights will diminish. It shall be one day which is known to the Lord. Neither day nor night, but at evening time it shall happen that it will be light. The Jewish commentaries 
See, that word light refers to the light of salvation. That this is when salvation comes to the nation. Hmm. And Brother Wayne? Yes, ma'am. And verse 7, doesn't that guide? Doesn't that refute what it says in the New Testament about the, that no one knows the day of the Lord except my Father in heaven? Yeah. Yeah, people misinterpret that verse, you're right. Because this tells us it was known to the Lord all the way back in the days of Zechariah, which means he's always known. Let's go to Revelation 19. Revelation 16 refers to the Battle of Armageddon. Revelation 19 is where you find it. This is the final battle. Now understand, there's some people who teach that there's only one war in the tribulation period. And I don't disagree with that. You have to understand the word battle and the word war is the same word in Hebrew. It's milchama. So some people say, well, there are three battles of a war. And other people say there are three wars. I say three wars because in each case, the participants are different. In the Psalm 83 war, it's Israel against the Muslim nations that share a border. In the Battle of Gog and Magog, it's Israel against the nations, the Muslim nations who do not share a border. And in the Battle of Armageddon, it's all the nations of the world against Israel. So you could say it's one battle that just grows and grows and grows until it engrosses the whole world. Doesn't really matter. Three battles, three wars, same word in Hebrew. Revelation 19, verse 11. I especially wanted to do this after reading Zechariah 14 that says, Thus the Lord my God will come, because we know for sure in Revelation 19:11 who's coming. Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. You must think back to the customs of the Middle East in the days the Bible was written. If a king comes in peace, he rides on a donkey. If he's coming on a horse, he's coming for war. Messiah's first coming, he came on a Donkeys, second time there's no donkey. Behold, a white horse. Is this the first white horse we've seen in Revelation? No. In chapter 6, there was a white horse. But who rode on it? The false Messiah. Because Satan wants to do what God will do. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. Faithful and true. Oh, Isaiah chapter 11 is all over that, huh? Messiah reigns in righteousness and truth. His eyes were like a flame of fire. Fire pictures what in prophecy? Judgment. He's coming to judge. On his head were many crowns. Where did he get those crowns? We gave them to him, right? We cast our crowns at his feet. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. So please don't send me an email to say what's that name because I don't know. <laughs> but I get lots of those emails. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the Word of God. Oh, does that take it back to John 1.1? 1, 1? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in John 1.14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled amongst us. Many, and the word of the Lord came to me saying, 
That's all over the Old Testament. Yeah. And the armies in heaven. The word army in Hebrew is the same word as host. You keep saying the Lord of hosts, Adonai Zavaot. It means a host of people. That's us returning. Zechariah 14 said, and all the saints with you. That's the rapture and resurrected saints coming. Are we coming to help fight? No. No, he doesn't need our help. We're just coming to watch. Clothed in white men and white and clean, followed them on white horses. People say, are there animals in heaven? There's at least horses. I can tell you that for sure. Now to his mouth goes a sharp sword. Not literally. What is the sharp sword? It's the word of God. That with these should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. Boy, that's right out of Isaiah 11 too. 2 is in also its first 4. I don't want to get people writing down 11 verse 2. He himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Where else in the scripture does it describe Messiah going to rule them with a rod of iron? Psalm I'll give you a hint, it's between Psalm 1 and Psalm 3. Two. Psalm 2, you got it. <laughs> Have you read Psalm 2? We will in a minute. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written. Aha, uh-huh, he's got a tattoo. No, he doesn't. What hangs across the thigh? The seat, the fringes on the prayer shawl with knots that spell out the name of God, the tetragrammaton, the yodhe how do you know what's the face cloth wrapped around the face of a man who's being buried back in the first century? It's his tallit. So when he comes with a robe dipped in blood, it's the tallit that was wrapped around his face at his burial. You know, head wounds bleed profusely. But he's king of kings and lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried with a loud voice. So would I if I was standing in the sun, but that's not important. Saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather together for the supper of the great God. Oh, how the rabbis mocked the New Testament for a millennia because of this verse. There were no carnivorous birds in Israel, none. Until 1967, when unexplicably they started gathering in Israel in the Golan Heights at the mountain called Gamla, and now they're there by the millions. And that's when a rabbi stopped mocking, going, hmm. Lots of things happened in 1967. That was one. I'm sorry, verse 18, I digress. That you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men. This means great armies are going to get slaughtered on the Golan Heights. Have we read about that? Yes, we have. And I saw the beast, that's the false messiah, Antichrist, the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Psalm 2 tells us why they're there. That's what we're going to look at in a minute. Then the beast was captured with him, the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, which he deceived those who received a mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. They're killed in the battle. So how are they cast alive into the lake of fire burning with fire and brimstone? 
they're resurrected to have immortal bodies so that when they're cast in a lake of fire, how long do they burn? Forever and ever. Think of the honor and privilege they have being the first two in the lake of fire. They can find the best lakeside property. Yeah. I, 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 I'm, yeah. I'll go back to work now. And the rest were killed with the swords, proceeded from the mouth of him, sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. So they do it not just at the Battle of Gog and Magog, but at Armageddon as well. Let's go back to Psalm 2, because I keep mentioning it. And by now, half of you turn there and you're reading it anyway. Psalm 2. It was partially fulfilled at Messiah's first coming. But like many prophecies, the primary fulfillment is at the end of days. Psalm 2, why do the nations rage? The word nations means the Gentile nations of the world. And the peoples plot a vain thing. What does the word vain mean? It will not succeed. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together, meaning they make an, a covenant between themselves against the Lord and against his anointed, saying... Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. That means we will not allow the Lord to return and to rule over the earth. We won't allow it. Verse 4, how does God react? Is he terrified? Is he sitting in his high chair going, oh no, what's going to happen? It says, he who sits in heaven shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath. When does the wrath get poured out? That's in the tribulation period. And distress them in his deep displeasure. Don't you like that word, distress them? Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. The Lord says, you can bring the entire world's armies together and you cannot stop Messiah from returning and ruling and reigning. He says, I'll declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Does the scripture say God has a begotten son? Yeah, here and in Proverbs chapter 30. Ask of me and I'll give you the nations for your inheritance, the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. Did we just read that? We did. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. God never, ever pronounces judgment without calling for repentance. So verse 10, now therefore be wise, O kings, be instructed, you judges of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. And blessed are all those who put their trust in him. So which nations will survive the battle of Armageddon? Those who repent and turn to God. They will survive. We were reading about that last night, weren't we? We were, in fact. Okay, let's go back to Zechariah before I forget what we're supposed to be doing today. That was verse 14. Verse 15. The Lord of hosts will defend them. So in the Psalm 83 war, the Battle of Gog and Magog, the Battle of Armageddon, if Israel puts their faith in the Lord, what do they have to fear? Nothing. The Lord of hosts 
will defend them. That's the same Lord of hosts we just read about in Revelation chapter 19, starting in verse 11. They shall devour and subdue with sling stones. They shall drink, drink and roar as if with wine. They shall be filled with the blood of like basins, like the corners of the altar. Meaning, the enemies of the world are going to fight. They're going to do everything they can do. But when you're fighting against the Lord of hosts, you're fighting a losing battle. Verse 16, the Lord their God will save them in that day. Save who? Save Israel. Will deliver them, bring them through the Messianic kingdom. I'm sorry, through the tribulation into the Messianic kingdom. Will he bring the unbelievers through? He'll bring the believers through. Does Zechariah tell us which percentage of Israel will survive? Yep, let's go to Zechariah chapter 13. It's a third. What happens to the two-thirds who will not believe? They will perish. Zechariah 13 verse 8. It shall come to pass in all the land, says the Lord. What land? Land of Israel. That two-thirds in it shall be cut off and die, but one-third shall be left in it. I'll bring the one-third through the fire. What's fire a picture of? Judgment. You refine them as silver is refined. You refine silver by putting it through the fire seven times. How many years is the tribulation period? Seven, seven years. Seven times. A time in the Bible is a year. So for seven years, God is going to refine Israel. And test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say, this is my people, and each one will say, the Lord is my God. How many of them? Each one. Does that remind you of anything in the book of Isaiah? Around chapter 4? Let's turn back to Isaiah chapter 4 and see. Isaiah chapter 4, verse 2. In that day, what day? The day of the Lord. The branch of the Lord. Who's the branch of the Lord? That's Yeshua the Messiah. Every place he's called the branch is the word zamak except for one. And that's in Isaiah where it's Netzer, which in any case he will come from Nazareth. But every other place it's Samach like it is here. The branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. The fruit of the earth shall be excellent and appealing for those of Israel who have escaped. Escaped what? The tribulation period. Have made it through, having been refined through the fire. Each one calling on the Lord. Verse, four, verse 3. And it shall come to pass that he who is left in Zion, which is prophetic Jerusalem, and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Is that what we read in Zechariah 13? It is. Every and everyone. It says everyone is recorded among the living in Jerusalem. When the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion. And purged the blood of Jerusalem from her midst. 
by the spirit of judgment, by the spirit of burning. That's the seven-year tribulation period. The Lord will create above every dwelling place of Mount Zion, and above her assemblies a cloud and smoke by day, and the shining of a flaming fire by night. What does that picture take you back to? Back to Exodus, where in the wilderness God dwelt among the children of Israel in the pillar of cloud and fire. He says, I'm going to do it again. For over all the glory there will be a covering. It's not covering. It's a chuppah. Chuppah is the marriage canopy. Who dwells under a marriage canopy? The bridegroom and the bride. And there will be a tabernacle. Tabernacle is a sukkah, a dwelling place. It tells us that the feast of Sukkot prophesies the coming millennial kingdom when Messiah will rule and reign right here on earth. Tabernacle for shade in the daytime from the heat, for a place of refuge and a shelter from storm and rain. Let's go back to Zechariah because we didn't finish verses 16 to 17. Verse 16 says, The Lord their God will save them in that day as the flock of his people. What is the Hebrew word for flock? Zon. And for Jerusalem, Zion. Zon, Zion, Zon, Zion. You see how closely related those two words are. And they shall be like the jewels of a crown. What's that mean? Hard? Like rocks? No, it means beautiful. What did we read in Isaiah 4? The beauty of the Lord. They should be like the jewels of a crown, lifted like a banner over his land. For how great is its goodness and how great its beauty. Have you read about the Messianic kingdom? Let's keep a finger here and turn back to Isaiah chapter 11. If you ever get discouraged in these days because life is hard, go back to Isaiah 11. Let's just start in verse 1 because it's about Messiah. And I love scriptures about Messiah. There shall come forth a rod. It's not a rod, it's a shoot. If you look at an olive tree... That it can appear dead, but out of its root will come a little shoot. That shoot is Messiah. From the stem of Jesse, but it's not stem, it's a stump. So the picture is, it looks like the kingdom of David, his throne is over, dead, gone. But out of that dead stump comes a living shoot, which is Messiah. And a branch, a netzer, shall grow out of his roots. Netzer is where you get the word Nazareth, where Messiah grew up. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. His delight is in the fear of the Lord. What does that mean? That he will obey all of God's commandments. Is that not what it says in John chapter 15? Yeah. And he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes nor decide by the hearing of his ears. Meaning you can't trick him. You can't persuade him you're righteous when you're not. He sees right through you. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor. 
and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. Ooh, that sounds like Psalm 2 and the other scriptures we read. With the breath of his lips, he shall slay the wicked. Please, nobody tell me he needs a breath mint. That's not what it means. It means he's going to speak forth the word of God and people are going to fall dead. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins and faithfulness the belt of his waist. That was Revelation 19, right? About righteousness and truth. But verse 6 describes what the kingdom will be like when Messiah rules and reigns. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. If you took a pen today and put in a wolf and a lamb, how many animals will there be tomorrow? One. But in the kingdom, there will still be two. They'll be sleeping together. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. How many of you today would let your little child lead lions, tigers, and bears on my down the street? Even little ones. I got a chance when I was in Omaha to play with the newborn tiger cubs. You know how kittens like to grab with their claws and bite with the teeth? So do they. And it hurts a lot. You don't do that today. Verse 7, the cow and the bear shall graze, meaning they eat grass. Right now they eat each other. Their young ones shall lie down together. And the lions shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole. And the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. What's a mountain represent in prophecy? Kingdom. The messianic kingdom is going to be across the world. Oh, I can finally have a mountain lion as my pet. <laughs> says, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Remember, Isaiah 2 and Micah 4 said there'll be no war. There'll be no bloodshed. There'll be no murder. Uh, does it sound like a place you want to be? Me too. So let's go back to Zechariah 9. Verse 17. We didn't finish it, but we're almost there. Is there going to be an ocean? Yes, there's going to be an ocean. Why do you ask that? That's just, just one. Okay. I was wondering if it was a prophecy you were thinking about from Revelation. Okay. All right. Verse 17. For how great is its goodness and how great is its beauty. Now do you see why they would describe the messianic kingdom that way? Grain shall make the young men thrive, and new wine the young women. In other words, no more famine, no more hunger. The rains will come in its season. The earth will produce bountifully, like it did before the fall in the garden. It's going to be like that again. Turn back to the book of Isaiah, chapter 60-something. I'll tell you when I get there. It's in the left-hand side of the right-hand page. Okay. Aha, uh -huh. 65. Isaiah 65, starting in verse 18. 
Isaiah 65 and 66 are about the return of the Lord and the establishment of the kingdom on earth. Verse 18 says, But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing and her people as a joy. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. The voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her, nor the voice of crying. Just think about that for a moment. That's across the entire kingdom. No more shall an infant from there live but a few days. That is, no more children die shortly after birth. Nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days. No murder. People live out their days. For the child shall die 100 years old, meaning when you're 100 years old, they still think of you as a child, as a youngster. How many of you today look at a 100-year-old person and say, a baby? <laughs> no, but you will. But the sinner being 100 years old shall be a curse, meaning the only ones who will die are those who turn away from God and walk in sin. They shall build houses and inhabit them, meaning no captivities, no one taking them away. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build in another inhabit. They shall not plant in another eat. For as the days of a tree, so shall be the days of my people. How old are the oldest trees in the Garden of Gethsemane? They're over 2,000 years old. So this is going to be like it was before the fall. People had the potential to live thousands of years. And my elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth children for trouble. For they shall be the descendants of the blessed of the Lord and their offspring with them. I have a question from Go to Meeting Land. Let's see. The question is, death in his kingdom, will that be due to sin? She's probably saying, boy, he answered that right after I sent the question. The answer to that is yes. Sir, go ahead. In the millennial kingdom, will there still be people having kids? The answer is yes. Those who are raptured and resurrected are in spiritual, immortal bodies. But those who survive the tribulation period go into the kingdom as human beings. They're the ones having children. Not you and I. We're past that point. I had a, saw a question back there. Or else somebody helping say he had a question. Okay. Back to Zechariah. We're up to chapter 10. I knew we could do it. Chapter 10. Are we ready? Verse 1. Ask the Lord for rain. In the time of the latter rain. Lord will make flashing clouds. He will give them showers of rain. Grass in the fields for everyone. But you know, there's two different meanings to the phrase, the latter rain. Yeah. In Israel, there's the early rain and the latter rain. And when the rain's in its season, the land produces bountifully. How many times a year do they harvest the crops in Israel? Do you know? Many times it's three, depending upon the crops. Some two, some three times. Let's see more questions from Go to Meeting. Let's see. Even Susie asks a question, even though the adversary is locked away for the largest portion of his millennial kingdom, yes, that's Revelation 20, is sin still an issue? 
The answer to that, Susie, is yes. And there's a reason for that. How many of you watch the show Laugh-In? Some of you are going, I'm not that old. Some of us were there. And what was one of the key lines that always got a big laugh? The devil made me do it. Come judgment day, people are going to be going, oh, it's not my fault. The devil made me do it. But when the devil's chained away for the millennial kingdom and people sin anyway, what does that prove to the world? Satan doesn't make us sin. Why do we sin? Because we choose to. Because the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked because we choose to sin because we enjoy it. And Susie goes on, so many consider the rest to be a time for which sin will not be of issue. Yes, but the scripture says otherwise. Then she says, sorry for asking questions. No problem. Ask all the questions you like. We learn that way. But the early rain refers to the rains in the fall. The latter rain, the rains in the spring. The rains in its season. But there's also another meaning of the latter rain. Go back to Deuteronomy 11. I want to cover them both. Deuteronomy 11. I know some of you out there going, I know, I know. Let him ask me the question. Not yet. You got to hold it. Deuteronomy 11, starting in verse 13. And it shall be that, what's that next word? If. Put that word in your notes. If you earnestly obey, does that mean casually, oh my, if I gotta? No. If you diligently, out of the love of your heart, obey my commandments, which I command you today. To love the Lord your God and serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. Then I will give you the rain for your land in its season. The early rain and the latter rain that you may gather in your grain, your new wine and your oil. Now put that with Proverbs 28 verse 9 which you already know. The one who turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. And now look back at, at Zechariah 10.1. Ask the Lord for rain in the time of the latter rain, and he sends the rain. What does that tell you about the hearts of the people? They've repented and turned back to God, right? In the millennial kingdom, who gets to enter into the kingdom? They're all believers. They have seen the miraculous delivery of the Lord. They've seen his intervention, his protection. And they love the Lord our God with their whole hearts. As we saw in Isaiah 4, as we saw in Zechariah 13, and each one says, he is my God. So verse 1, whether you realize it or not, tells that the hearts of the people have changed. They've repented. They've come back to God. We have to turn to Hosea, don't we? Yes, sir. Because in that calendar, Tishri is the first month. That's why there's two calendars. When we come to the book of Joel, it's going to refer to the other calendar. 
A lot of people think when God gave Israel a new calendar in Exodus chapter 12, he took away the old one, but it's not so. Both calendars remain. One, the first month is in the spring, the other is in the fall, and that's very important. But we'll get there. Go to Hosea, which means salvation. Hosea, which means salvation. Start with chapter 4, verse 6. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Is that because they didn't study calculus? Is that the knowledge we're talking about? No. How do we know? Look at the last part of 6. Because you've forgotten the law of your God. Because they've forgotten the law of their God, Hosea chapter 5 comes into place. In verses 14 and 15 of Hosea 5, talk about the three captivities. The northern captivity of Assyria in 722 BCE. The southern kingdom going to captivity in Judah for 70 years. And then the diaspora, which is just now in the process of coming to an end. Verse 15 says, I'll return again to my place. That's Psalm 110.1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. He's going to remain there till when? It says right here in verse 15. Till they acknowledge their offense, then they will seek my face. So what have they done in verse 15? Repented. When do they repent? In the tribulation period. In their affliction, that's the Hebrew word za'am, refers to the tribulation period. They will earnestly seek me. Come, let us return to the Lord. Return means to repent. For he has torn, but he will heal us. He has stricken, but he will bind us up. After two days, he'll revive us. What's a day to the Lord? A thousand years. How long ago was the first coming about? About 2,000 years. On the third day, he'll raise us up that we may live in his sight. And when they come back into the kingdom, look at verse 3. Let us know. Let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. Think back to Hebrews 4, 6. The Torah, the commandments, statutes, and judgments of God. His going forth is established as the morning. How many of you worry at night that maybe the morning won't come tomorrow? You're afraid to go to sleep because maybe the sun won't come up? Any of you? I didn't think so. And his return is as established as the fact that the sun will come up tomorrow. It says he will come to us like the rain, like the latter and former rain to the earth. To what does the Lord liken Messiah's coming? Like the former and the latter rains. Hmm. Let's go on to Job 29. Job 29. Job, J-O-B. Or Job if you prefer. Yeah, Joel's not the same thing as Job. There he is. Page 693. Uh-uh. But Job 29. Go ahead. Until the time of the Gentiles is complete, those kind of prophecies. Um, the Gentile world powers have ruled over the world since the time of Egypt. 
and they reign over the world until Messiah returns. And that's when their time is fulfilled. When Messiah returns, he will rule and reign. Yeah. So Job 29, or Job 29, whichever you prefer. Verse 21. God bless you. Verse 21. Are we ready? Men listened to me and waited and kept silence for my counsel. After my words, they did not speak again. And my speech settled on them as dew. They waited for me as for the rain. And they opened their mouth wide as for the spring rain. If I mocked at them, they did not believe it. Light of my countenance, they did not cast down. They waited for me as for the rain. Okay. Jeremiah chapter 3. Jeremiah chapter 3. The Lord's words are as refreshing as the rain. As the rain brings life to the plant life on the earth, so it brings, God's words brings life to us. Jeremiah 3, verses 1 to 3. And I underline the word, or the number 3, because that's the real important one. Jeremiah 3. God bless you. They say, if a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's, may he return to her again. In other words, you divorce your wife, she goes and marries somebody else, divorces him, can you take her back as your wife? The Bible says no. Would, that, would not the land be greatly polluted? But you have played the harlot with many lovers, yet return to me, says the Lord. He says, you Israel, my betrothed, have gone out from me, had other lovers, and now you come back to me. He says, lift up your eyes to the desolate heights and see if they're desolate, are they full of food and vegetation and life? No. Where you have not lain with men, by the road you sat for them like an Arabian in the wilderness, and you have polluted the land with your harlotries and your wickedness. Therefore, the showers have been withheld, and there has been no latter rain. So what causes God not to send the rains? Sin. Disobedience. Therefore, if there are major portions of this country that are under drought conditions right now, what's the remedy? Repentance. And instead of repentance, our government says, Oh, it's climate change. It's not climate change. It's God's judgment. If you want God's judgment to stop, you repent. You turn back to God. Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 22. Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 22. There is a meme going around on Facebook. I don't know if you've seen it or not. But it's got two parts to it. It shows the water level at Ellis Island a hundred and some years ago. 
and today. And the level's exactly the same. It hasn't changed. And Jeremiah 5 speaks to that. Verse 22 says, Do you not fear me, says the Lord? Will you not tremble at my presence, who have placed the sand as the bound of the sea by a perpetual decree that it cannot pass by it? Go to Los Angeles, to Redondo Beach, and walk the beach. Was it, it's at the same place it was 100 years ago, 200 years ago. To listen to our government, oh, the water level's rising, rising, rising. Pretty soon, Utah will be beachfront property. God says, uh-uh, I gave the limit to the sea, and that's where it's going to stay. And though its waves toss to and fro, yet they cannot prevail, meaning they cannot change the border that God sent. Though they roar, yet they cannot pass over it. But this people has a defiant and rebellious heart. They've revolted and departed. They do not say in their heart, Let us now fear the Lord our God who gives rain, both the former and the latter rain in its season. The same God who tells the ocean what his boundaries are, is the one who tells the rains to fall or not fall. Should we then continue in sin and hope that the rains will fall anyway? We should not. Let's go to Joel chapter 2. Some of you already turned there knowing I was going to get there eventually. And you're right. Joel chapter 2. Joel in Hebrew is Yael. It means the Lord is God. Joel chapter 2, oddly enough, is about the tribulation period. But we want to go to verse 23. <coughs> Be glad then, you children of Zion. That's prophetic Jerusalem. Means the Lord is coming back. And rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the former rain faithfully. The former rain here refers to the first coming of Messiah. How do you know that God will fulfill the prophecies of the second coming of Messiah? It says because he caused the first to be fulfilled faithfully. Passover does not begin at sundown as the 14th becomes the 14th of the first month. It doesn't start Passover until 3 p.m. in the afternoon. What time did Messiah die? 3 p.m. Hello! Followed by he was buried in unleavened bread. He was raised at the Feast of first fruits. The Holy Spirit came at the Feast of Weeks. God kept each of the four festivals that prophesied his Messiah's first coming to the day and to the very hour. So how will he fulfill the second coming? He says, for he has given you the former rain faithfully and he will cause the rain to come down for you. The former rain and the latter rain in the first month. Now, 
they can't both be in the first month if one's in the spring and one's in the fall unless there are two calendars. Messiah's first coming was in the spring. Will his second coming be in the spring? No, read verse 24. The threshing floor shall be full of wheat, and the vats shall overflow with new wine and oil. So the first coming was in the spring. The second coming will be in the fall. You know what? There's three fall festivals that haven't yet been fulfilled. The rapture and the resurrection, the second coming, and the establishment of the kingdom on earth. They have not yet been fulfilled, but you know what? They will be. Go to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23. We mentioned this, but now let's put our eyes on it. Verses 37 to 39. What color are the words? Red. Unless you're looking at a computer screen, and they may be black. But okay. But they're red even on your phone. Okay. It says in verse 37, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Who's Messiah talking to? Jerusalem. Yeah, not a trick question. The one who kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to her in Jerusalem, saying, Oh, I wish he was talking to somebody else. How often I wanted to gather your children together as the hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Was it the Lord's failure? No, it was our failure. See, your house is left to you desolate. That word house could refer to a dwelling place. It could refer to a synagogue or it could refer to the temple. Which is it referring to here? The temple. Was the law given as a way to earn salvation? No. no, but that's the way the Pharisees have been teaching it. The people have to understand correctly, which means God's going to have to take the temple away. goes on in verse 30 and say, For I say to you, you shall, be, you shall see me no more till you say, Baruch HaBab Hashem Adonai, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's why we read in Zechariah 14 that when the people cry out for the Lord to return, he's going to return, and not before. Why hasn't the Lord returned yet? Because they haven't called for him yet. They have not repented yet. So why did God have to take away the temple? Let's talk about that for a moment. Messiah was crucified, buried, and resurrected in the year 30. I wasn't there, but I know it was the year 30. Because the non-Messianic Jews tell me that. They record in the Talmud that from the year 30 till the temple fell in the year 70, there's 40 years, right? 40 years, that's a time of testing, just like in the wilderness. For those 40 years, there were things that happened. For instance... On Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the priest would put in his two hands and pull out two lots, and the lot for the Lord would come up in the right hand of the priest every time. But for the 40 years, from 30 to 70, it never came up even once. 
For the 40 years from 30 to 70, when they sent the scapegoat out into the wilderness, they took the shiny colored cloth off, tied it to the tree, pushed over the, the animal. As it was torn to bits, that cloth always turned white. But from 30 to 70, stayed red. One of the lights on the menorah called the Ner Tamid had to stay continuously lit 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. From 30 to 70, it went out every night. They could not keep it burning no matter what they did. For 40 years, from 30 to 70, the gates of the temple would open by themselves every night to allow in invaders. There was nothing they could do to keep them closed. However they tried to lock them, they came open. And then at the end of those 40 years, God took away the temple. And in those 40 years, the Jewish people had to make a choice. Some of them said, you know, that without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. Messiah's death is the blood we will rely on. And the rest said, no. So when the temple fell, the two groups split. The believers went to Pella in Jordan. The non-believers went to Yavne down in the Gaza area. And they said, where do we get the blood now? And they said, oh, no problem. We just won't have the blood. We'll instead earn our salvation through good deeds and prayers. But they had to make a choice. Would they accept Messiah's blood or would they not? They had 40 years to come to a decision. And that's where they split. Okay, back to chapter 10 of Zechariah. I think we're up to verse 2. For the idols speak delusion. You know what? The idols don't speak at all. But the false prophets tell the people that they did. So it's those who are serving the Idols that are giving the lies to the people. And it says in verse 2, the diviners envision lies. And tell false dreams. They comfort in vain. Therefore the people wend their way like sheep. They're in trouble because there is no shepherd. So who caused the people to go astray? The false teachers, the false prophets. The idols, they don't do anything. But the diviners are the ones who bring the message to the people. God frequently likens you and I to sheep. Don't be offended. If he calls you a goat, then be offended. But sheep are the most docile of animals, right? They're extremely loyal to the shepherd, and they follow the shepherd anywhere and everywhere. Just off Old Five, as you're going up toward Elijah, there's a shepherd with a group of sheep right there at the side of the road. And the sheep are frequently wandering around the yard eating grass, but they will never step into the road because the shepherd doesn't lead them that way. And they, I, I love just watching them follow the shepherd. But take away the shepherd, and what happens to the sheep? They don't know where to go. 
And if the sheep are trying to be led by a false shepherd, then the false shepherd is going to take them any way except the way they should go. And God talks about Israel being like sheep without a shepherd many places. Let's start back in Numbers 21. Numbers 21. The shepherds of Israel come in three categories, prophet, priests, and kings. Numbers 21, starting in verse 12. Verse 12. Numbers 21, beginning in verse 12. From there they moved and camped in the valley of Zered. From there they moved and camped on the other side of the Arnon. That's a river in Jordan that flows down into the Jordan River. Which is in the wilderness that extends from the border of the Amorites. For the Arnon is the border of Moab between Moab and the Amorites. Therefore it said in the book of the wars of the Lord. Wahab in Sufa, the brooks of the Arnon. And the slope of the brooks that reaches to the dwelling of Ar and lies on the border of Moab. From there they went to Be'er, which is the well where the Lord said to Moses, Gather the people together and I'll give them water. Then Israel sang this song, Spring up, O well, all of you who sing to it. The well the leaders sang, dug by the nation's nobles, by the lawgiver with their staves. And from the wilderness they went to Matanah. What does this have to do with the topic? Who is the shepherd here? Shepherd is Moses. Where do the people go? Wherever Moses leads them. Now let's turn to 1 Kings chapter 22. 1 Because the people didn't have Moses forever. Moses was not permitted to go into the promised land. 1 Kings chapter 22, verse 17. 1 Kings chapter 22, verse 17. After the death of Moses, Joshua led the people, and they followed the Lord. But after Joshua... There was a string of judges that didn't lead the people right. And then after the judges, they demanded a king. And the first king was Saul. Did he lead them right? No. Then David led them right. But then his son led them astray, etc. So in 1 Kings chapter 22, verse 17, it says, Then he said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. Why were they going, why does it mention the mountains? On the mountains, the tops of the mountains were the high places where the idols were. Why did Israel turn to the idols? Because they were not following a good shepherd, leading them on the path to the Lord. They followed the false shepherds who took them where? To the idols. Ezekiel chapter 34 Ezekiel chapter 34. Verse 
God specifically lays at the feet of Israel's prophets, priests, and kings. They're turning away from God to pagan idolatry and therefore being cast out of the nation. Ezekiel 34, start in verse 1. Let's go to verse 10. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, somebody asked me earlier, does the word of the Lord appear in the Old Testament? Yeah, all over, just like this. The word saying means it's a quote right out of the Lord's own lips. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Again, that's the prophets, priests, and kings. Prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God to the shepherds. It's actually my Lord, the Lord. Woe to the shepherds of Israel who feed themselves. Who are shepherds supposed to feed? The sheep, the flocks. What did the Lord say to Peter three times in the book of John? Feed my sheep. Should not the shepherds feed the flocks? You eat the fat, meaning the best of the sheep, and clothe yourselves with wool. You slaughter the fatlings, but you do not feed the flock. The weak you have not strengthened, nor have you healed those who were sick nor bound up the broken, nor brought back what was driven away, nor sought what was lost. But with force and cruelty you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And they became food for all the beasts of the field when they were scattered. My sheep wandered through all the mountains and on every high hill, that is to every pagan god there was. Yes, my flock was scattered over the whole face of the earth that is in captivity. And no one was seeking or searching for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Anybody see a woodshed experience coming? As I live, says the Lord God, that's an oath on the name of God. Surely because my flock became a prey and my flock became food for every beast of the field because there was no shepherd. Nor did my shepherds search for my flock, but the shepherds fed themselves and did not feed the flock. Therefore, O shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my flock at their hand. Do you want to be one of those shepherds on Judgment Day? No, not me either. Go to Matthew chapter 9. See if we can find something a little more upbeat. He's going to seek us out. He's going to seek out the, the sheep that he knows their heart. Yep, and whether they've strayed by their own choices or by the false shepherds. The Lord loves us so much that those, like my children, I got, I got five children. I'm not sure where they are spiritually at this point. But there's that hope and the, that that confirmation again right here that he's seeking out in, a, in an active way, a positive way because he knows their heart already and we don't know the end yep. of what, what that is for them. So you might even say he's the good shepherd, huh? Yeah, you might. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see if we can get there shortly. Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 to 38. There's a reason he keeps calling his sheep and Messiah the good shepherd. Matthew 9, 35 to 38. 
Then Yeshua went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. What's the gospel of the kingdom? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them, because they were weary and scattered like sheep, having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Be very careful. When he had them pray to the Lord to send out laborers, who did they send? He sent them. So when you pray, Lord, send somebody, don't be surprised if the Lord says, you're somebody. I got a job for you. Now go to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. Hanani means here I am. I'm ready to do what the Lord asks of me. John chapter 10. We'll start in verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Did Messiah give his life for us? Yes, he did. But a hireling who's not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and runs. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he's a hireling and does not care about the sheep. But Messiah says, I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and am known by my own. See that, am known? Mm -hmm. Just put in your notes John 17, verse 3, which says, to know the Lord is to have eternal life. In 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, which tells you how to know whether you truly know him yep. or not. It says in verse 15, As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. Talking about his crucifixion, his death, burial, and resurrection. But isn't that also as how he lived his life? Yep. In teaching? Yep. In showing? Yep. In, in and the scripture twice says, follow his example. Yep. So verse 16 says, and other sheep. That's referring to the non-Jewish nations. Does God care just for Israel? No. Does he care just for the Jewish people? No. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold. Isaiah 56 speaks to those too. Them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice. And there will be two flocks and two shepherds. No, what do you mean? There'll be one flock and one shepherd. If there's one flock and one shepherd, how many directions can that flock go? Just one. Just one. We still have a couple minutes, so let's go back to Zechariah chapter 10. We're up to verse 3.
My anger is kindled against the shepherds. Who's the my? That's the Lord. In the shepherds, he's talking about those that are supposed to be leading the people to God, and instead they're leading them away from God. I will punish the goat herds, for the Lord of hosts will visit his flock. Lord of hosts, what kind of prophecy? In times. The house of Judah, and will make them as his royal horse in the battle. Hmm. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 56. That I know I just mentioned. But the Lord keeps bringing it up. We will start in verse 6 and go through verse 12 if time does not expire on us. Also the sons of the foreigner are those the Jewish people or the non-Jewish people? Non-Jewish. Who join themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord to be his servants. Everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant. So what does this say about the Gentiles who want to be part of God's kingdom? Everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant. My covenant includes all of the commandments. So why does he separate out everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath? Because that's the sign that we worship him. That's in Exodus chapter? Yeah, that's right. Okay. Verse 7. Even them I will bring to my holy mountain. What's a mountain in prophecy is the kingdom. So to the messianic kingdom. And make them joyful in my house of prayer. That's the temple. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house of prayer, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel says, now this is just like John 10. Yet I will gather to him others besides those who are gathered to him. So verse 8 says the Lord is going to bring the believers, whether Jewish or not Jewish, to the Messianic kingdom to be with Messiah. But now we're going to talk about the shepherds. All you beasts of the field come to devour. All you beasts in the forest his watchmen are blind. Talking about the shepherds, they're blind. They're all ignorant. They're all dumb dogs. They cannot bark, sleeping, lying down, loving to slumber. Yes, they're greedy dogs which never have enough. So he's talking about the shepherds, not just of Israel, but of the Gentile nations too. Are they leading people to God by and large? No. And they are shepherds who cannot understand. Why? They all look to their own way, everyone for his own gain. Boy, I'm glad we never see today a shepherd on TV saying, I need me another airplane. Uh, what's that? Buy my book. Buy my book, yeah. Put money in my pocket. 
Oh, man. Come, one says, I'll bring wine. We will fill ourselves with intoxicating drink. Tomorrow will be as today and much more abundant. In other words, the shepherds that are supposed to be leading the people to God are worried about their bank accounts. Oh, may it never be. But we've run out of time. We'll have to pick up next week, Lord willing, in Zechariah chapter 10, verse 4.